Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Cannabis dispensaries seem to be everywhere these days, so they must be doing well, right? Well, not if you ask some of the folks who grow the marijuana that ends up in joints, gummies, and vape pens. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Craft pot growers in the state have had a hard time raising the 5 to $10 million they need to get their businesses off the ground, and they're struggling to see the path forward. I spoke with investigative reporter Alex Nitkin with the Better Government Association's Illinois Answers Project about what this means for the state's cannabis industry. And I began by asking Alex about the factors that keep growers from getting started. You know, more than anything, it is fundraising. It is just really, really expensive to get one of these operations up off the ground, especially considering uh, a lot of the regulatory, you know, red tape around this. Um, We're talking about um, in the midst of the state's efforts to bring what's called social equity and social equity licenses into the industry. We're seeing that start to trickle out for the dispensaries. We now have more than 50 social equity dispensary licensees uh, awarded and operating. But of course, you can't really grow the industry wholesale and you're not really going to see those those still way high prices come down until yeah. more of the you know flour actually gets grown and more of the product actually gets you know extracted and infused and all those edibles and everything get made. And so the state's uh, architecture that they set up for doing that is you have these big cultivation centers that are run by sort of the big guys, the operators that were already on the scene and their way of building social equity into the growing space is to award what's called craft grow licenses. Um, and there were almost 90, there are currently 87 operators who mostly come from what's called the social equity background, people who have shown that they somehow you know, were punished by being part of the illegal cannabis market that are now trying to get into the legal cannabis market. Mm-hmm. Um, of those 87 licensees, only 10 of them are actually actually operational right now. I see. And there's just so many different layers to getting that, that done. It turns out that getting them licenses may have been the easy part, and now they actually have to get enough money to, to get up and running. So your, idol, your article, it's titled, Illinois doled out millions to pot growers. It still may not be enough to save the industry. So from the customer standpoint, as I alluded to before, it looks like the marijuana business is booming, that everything's great. The state brought in $562 million in tax revenue last year, right? But could having... So few growers mean that we just can't keep up with demand. Is that what's happening? Well, we're absolutely not keeping up with demand at this point. I think that the general kind of guess as to how many dispensaries we would need to have um, as set by policymakers to reach, you know, what's called market saturation to sort of be meeting the demand is somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 dispensaries around the state. You know, you look at states like Washington or Colorado, by this point in their legalization, they had hundreds and hundreds of dispensaries going in their smaller states than Illinois. As of today, there are, I think, 160-something dispensaries. So, oh, so yes, we're, we're well off. From- we're well off, and, you know, there's still a big black market and a legal market. And, yes, the um, cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry in Illinois is bringing in, like you said, hundreds of millions in tax dollars, but that really has started to plateau in the last couple of years. 
as the state has been looking for a way to try to bring social equity into the industry and trying, you know, is understandably reticent to really let the industry grow until some of the social equity operators actually start growing. So yeah, yeah. It, it may seem like definitely here in Chicago, there are new dispensaries coming up all over the place, especially in the past year. Now, finally, after all of these legal tangles um, and logistical snafus, yeah. the social equity dispensaries are finally getting going. Um, but yeah, as we see- but everything is not as it seems. Right. I mean, definitely progress is a lot slower than almost anyone would like. What options do independent growers have if banks can't provide that financing? There are not very many and because banks just can't, period, provide that financing because it's still illegal under federal law. You cannot just go to a bank and ask for a loan for my you know, marijuana business, regardless of what it is, because it's still federally illegal. Banks won't touch it. So mm. we focused on this. So do we need a lift on that federal ban then to release folks? Well, that's a whole other conversation, shackles? Sasha. Yeah, you might have to write your congressperson about that. And that's something that has gone around and around. It's, it's something called the Safe Banking Act. Not really sure you know, how realistic or where that stands, but we've heard rumblings about it. Another problem is just, you know, endemic racial discrimination in the lending industry. We talked to some, yeah, I mean, we talked to some growers who said, you know, even if Congress lifted that ban on uh, banking and cannabis tomorrow, it's not like you're going to see all of these black and brown entrepreneurs suddenly getting lots of loans from banks because we know from a lot of statistics from the Federal Reserve that um, entrepreneurs of color and especially black business owners are much, much more likely to be denied for loans from traditional banks. Um, and when they get loans to be charged much higher interest. So they have much higher barriers to entry, mm -hmm. layer that on top of the fact that they can't even go to banks. And so this fund- and This is what you call endemic discrimination. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in the lending industry, we talked about, you know, in discrimination in all forms of lending and housing lending and all of that that absolutely applies to business lending. And it's just one more layer on top of the legal restrictions. And so the fund that you mentioned, the Cannabis Business Development Fund, was the strategy that state lawmakers baked into that original 2019 legalization law. This is going to be a revolving loan fund that the state is going to provide these growers the support that they need to really get going. And I should say it wasn't just meant for growers. It was meant for you know uh, infusers and, and dispensaries and okay. everyone. Um, the first round ended up primarily going to growers in 2021 because at that point dispensary owners were still tied up in court. Um, yada, yada, yada. The state tries to put all of this money out. They have this creative kind of workaround um, system. They tried – they said we have this um, – approximately $40 million we're going to put into it, but we think we can leverage that for even more money if we go through these two intermediary kind of creative lender organizations called yeah. Credit Union One and Good Tree Capital. Um, I mean, long story short, they tried for a year to go through those organizations and the money was just not moving. It kept getting bogged down in all of these um, uh, uh, credit issues. People were being rejected. Um, one applicant had to resubmit their proposal six times and the money was just not wow. getting out the door. And so finally, um, about a year ago, the state kind of just gives up and says, we're just, we're just going to give out the money. We're just going to, yeah. we have this fund. We're going to give it directly. They're going to be forgivable loans, which is basically as good as grants. If, uh, the, um, uh, borrower can demonstrate that they're using the money the way that they're supposed to. And so we're seeing that, you know, we talked to a number of growers who really benefited from that, who got loans of about $1.3 million each. And they said that it was really critical in helping them get off the ground. The mm -hmm. problem, of course, is that you're talking about $1 or $2 million that they're getting in loans. It costs at least 5 and up to $10 million to get one of these dispensaries off the ground. And only 10 out of 87 licensed growers actually got this money. Wow. So 
there's a lot more need. So that in mind, Alex, just walk me through the process. If I want to start and run a cannabis business and I want to grow marijuana, where do I begin? You would have to apply with the Illinois Department of Agriculture for what's called a craft grow license. Um, you would probably want to hire a lawyer or you could try to dive into this process yourself as some of these growers did and just go through thousands, literally thousands of pages of due diligence, of regulation, of um, showing that you're going to be able to get this equipment and that equipment and this mm -hmm. kind of square footage and this, you know, locker room space and all of these very, very precise regulatory uh, barriers that they have to hit. And even after all of that, even after you're allowed to open, a, a huge barrier that the craft growers are really hobbled by um, that we get into, they can only grow up to a canopy space of 5,000 square feet. Um, after they have to sink all of this money into the infrastructure of growing and hiring and everything, there's this this really low cap of 5,000 square feet when, you know, the big the big operators of the cultivation centers are able to grow to hundreds of thousands of square feet, these huge um, systems. And so uh, this is sort of their big legislative priority right now. They're trying to raise that cap to be able to automatically um, at least grow to 14,000 square feet instead of having to, you know, go through more forms and bureaucracy and delays to, to actually try to get there. They say that yeah. would make it easier to attract money. Oh, that's the other thing you would need is a lot of money, money. to start. Money. That's, that's sort of the key that we're coming back to. So we talk about these new state-backed loans. You, you mentioned how they're, these are forgivable, right? What, what does making these loans forgivable do for a first-time business owner in the long run? Yeah, well, I think that there are two big consequences, one one positive and one potentially negative. The positive is that for a borrower, it's it's great. You don't have to worry anymore about, you know, as long as you're hitting your benchmarks, suddenly this is it's just money that you don't have to worry about having to pay back to the state. And so we were talking to some of these craft growers who said that once the state made this a forgivable loan, it was just a huge burden off of their shoulders and a big sigh of relief and it really helped them get going. The downside um, is that the whole idea behind this loan fund is that it would be a revolving loan fund. In yeah. order to be a revolving fund, the state has to be getting money back. And so if the state has this money that it's just giving out, there's a question. And, and you know, uh, Seek Ballard, who's the founder of Good Tree Capital, which is one of those intermediary companies that the state had been working with, made this point that, yeah, it's really good for the borrowers right now for them to be forgivable loans. But from a state agency and state taxpayer perspective, this is sort of like a, a sugar high because this money is going to go out the door, but mm -hmm. none of these businesses are ever going to stop needing loans, even after they're up and running. And so the question really remains, how is the state going to, or is it still interested in setting up a loan fund that is sustainable? That's really a revolving loan fund that is able to keep putting out these loans, um, without all of the barriers and credit checks and red tape and difficulties and discrimination of traditional private. Yeah. Loans. Cause not everybody was on board with, with the switch to a forgivable loan model, right? Who, who was against it and why? Right. Well, I mean, mostly it was, it was the folks that I just mentioned, principally the, the um, credit union one and good tree capital, which were these two, you know, multi-state companies that are really are dedicated to the project of, of trying to bring social equity to the cannabis industry. And, you know, ultimately, they they became more or less traditional lenders. They they ran credit checks, and a lot of these applicants they don't have very good credit because that's the whole point of the program is right. to try to get people who either have criminal backgrounds or who have don't have histories in business. And so, um, 
that was sort of the point that they were making that, yeah, it's good in the short term, but in the long term, what is the state going to do? Are they, you know, one of the things that we heard from the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, which is running this loan program, mm-hmm. is at this point, they're just relying on annual appropriations from the legislature, who is ultimately going to have to fund this to get that money out. We also talked to some other folks um, like... Amea Puar is a, a name that sort of comes up in the cannabis industry in the Chicago political space. He's yeah. a former alderman who actually owns a couple of social equity licenses and is really involved in the project of, of public banking and said that, you know, toward the end of our piece, we, we quote him saying this is a really big opportunity for um, the state to actually get into sort of dipping its toe into public banking, into having a publicly backed loan fund where you are able to give out loans and the, the their creditworthiness can be based on the applicant's creditworthiness mm-hmm. can be based not on just whether they think they're going to pay it back, but the the good to the state and its taxpayers. Amaya really has been championing that for a long time now. The, yeah, the, the and so that this is sort of at the nexus of his yeah. um, uh, cause of cannabis and and um, public banking, and he really sees an opportunity. And Horacio Mendez is another person we talked to at the Woodstock Institute, which works in this kind of policy of okay, maybe the state can just do for forgivable loans for now to get some of these operators off the ground at this really precarious moment. And then maybe it can mm-hmm. sort of make them non-forgivable directly state back loans later. But I mean, the bottom line is that this fund has been now infused with more money and it's really up to regulators to figure out how they're going to try to keep this, whatever little momentum there is going so that the craft go grow industry um, doesn't just sort of, frankly, fizzle and, and die. Yeah. Well, I know you you published a follow-up to this story just today. So briefly tell us before you go, Alex, what's next here? Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of legislative priorities that the growers and sort of the social equity operators in the cannabis space in general have. Um, as we get into veto session, you know, it's always a heavy lift to get things into this very, very short veto session. But they say that there are a few things that if they're not passed now or they have to wait until next year, could be really catastrophic for social equity in the industry. Foremost is raising that cap on craft grow canopy space that I mentioned before. Um, also, uh, removing some of the barriers to getting background checks. You, currently, you have to go through a state background check to um, – uh, get a license to work, just be an employee mm-hmm. in the space, um, removing some yeah, restrictions that would let transporters do more business because licensed transporters are having a lot of their own um, issues. And uh, really, the, I mean, those are, those, are, those are the major ones. The other one is um, allowing medicinal, uh, allowing dispensaries to have drive-through and curbside pickup for medicinal patients. So those wow. are sort of the big top-line priorities that um, applicants or the, the social equity folks know that it's just veto session. We, they know that they're not going to get a whole big comprehensive right. bill in there. Those are just their, you know, they're shooting their shot at some of those basic things. And then we're probably going to see them. to jump through for sure. We're going to see them come back next year for things like, you know, on-site consumption and consolidation into a single cannabis agency. But yeah. basically this is a live issue that um, there's a lot more legislating and policymaking that needs to happen before it reaches maturity, especially in the way that you know, lawmakers envisioned in the first place. And you'll be back to tell us all about it, I'm sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Alex Nitkin's a reporter with the Illinois Answers Project for the Better Government Association. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. That conversation was produced by Brenda Ruiz and edited by Ethan Schwab and Dan Tucker. Don't forget, you can find all of Reset's conversations at wbez.org slash reset. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again soon. 
If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.